Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. All right, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So very, very exciting guest today. We're going to be learning a lot about fashion and also the fashion industry. So I guess without further ado, Rebecca Minkoff, welcome to the show today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I see that you studied in, in FIT, but how was uh, life for you there in, in Florida after moving? You know, as a parent, um, I really think it's an idyllic place, but uh, as a nine-year-old that uh, had a full life ahead of her, you know, for me at the time, it was really, really challenging and pretty terrible to to move. So I I actually hated it and I couldn't wait to get the heck out of there. So, so at what point did you start getting really closed and, and excited about, about the fashion industry? Uh, basically around the age of nine, um, kind of around the time that we moved, I, you know, saw a dress that I loved. Uh, I wanted my mom to buy it for me. She was like, no, I'm not going to buy it for you, but I'll teach you how to sew. And, um, she really, uh, you know, taught me lots of early skills that got me hooked in a way that I felt really confident that I could you know, make something out of nothing and, um, began to just get addicted. So I enrolled in art classes and design classes, you know, at the age of 10, made my bat mitzvah dress and elected to go to a performing arts high school where I, uh, studied that full-time, uh, during my electives. And so it allowed me to really get a lot of great skills that I probably wouldn't have learned until college, um, at an early age. So then at what point do you decide to, to move to New York, Rebecca? I moved to New York when I was um, 18. I did not have a job, but I did have a paid internship that my brother had helped arrange. He knew a designer and called him up and said, do you take interns? And he said, yeah, and we pay them minimum wage. So it allowed me to sort of make the jump, uh, moved with two suitcases, nowhere to live. Um, but at this, this internship and, you know, really was just excited to see what would happen if I got my start in the fashion industry. Really cool, really cool. So, so then FIT. So, what was the experience of uh, of going to study to FIT? So originally, I had no plans to go to school. Um, my parents are not your normal sort of you must go to college type of adults, and um, I started working for this designer. And my aunt uh, basically was like, "Over my dead body, will you not go to school? You'll never amount to anything." Um, 
And after her, you know, sort of yelling at me every day for six months, I said, okay, fine, I'll enroll. So I really only enrolled part-time at night and took a bunch of classes and felt that I'd really learned a lot of the things that they were teaching to first-year students I had already learned in high school. So I was a little bored and I, after a semester, said, you know what, this isn't for me. I'm going to, I'm just going to continue on the path that I was on. So what was that path? The path was to continue to work for this designer, sort of start dabbling in my line on the side, you know, sewing everything, going down to little local East Village boutiques, selling uh, selling those goods and, you know, seeing what would happen. So what did you learn about the art of the sale in fashion? I've learned that, you know, not all designers are comfortable with selling their own product. They're too close to it sometimes. Um, and I think it's hard to be selling something that you created because any feedback can't be taken uh, in as it would to someone who didn't think it up as, you know, the artist. So if you're going to be both roles, you really have to have thick skin. You really have to develop, you know, uh, a filter of when you're being the seller versus the designer. Um, and if you don't have that kind of thick skin, then you got to hire someone that does because they're both crucial. But, um, you know, if you get hurt really easily, then it's definitely not a pleasant experience. So how do you take it? So when you were selling and, and people are kind of like giving you feedback or maybe they dislike it or, or how, 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 how are, who do you need to be, I guess, to be effective in, in being able to get the sell done? I think you have to be someone that doesn't take no for an answer and that is really willing to, uh, compromise. I think, I think in this day and age with commerce, you know, I think you have to be willing to figure out what works for the other person as well. And it's not just a one-sided view of things. I think there has to be a lot of collaboration and just a willingness uh, to listen. Yeah, listening. That's why we have two ears and one mouth. <laughs> so, so, Rebecca, let me ask you this. So, so it seems that from 2001 to, two, to 2005 were, you know, really the, the company that, that, you, that you founded it became like more formalized and, and, and it was like the route to pursue. It seems like from those, during those four years, probably there was a lot of testing and, and really understanding and, and before you really took the, the leap of faith with, with both feet. So what happened during those four years? I think from 2001 to 2005, it was really, you know, a homegrown business. I was making most everything myself. Uh, I wouldn't even categorize it as necessarily a proper business. I didn't have a you know, a business bank account. I didn't have a tax idea. I was really just trying to keep up with the demand and, and really just being a little, you know, shop within my apartment. Um, in 2005, when I launched the morning after bag and you could see that taking off in a way that was global, um, we, you know, we, I had to get really smart about my next steps if I wanted this to turn into something successful. And so, you know, my first call was to my father, you know, saying, you know, will you help me? I finally have, you know, traction and it's coming, you know, not just out of a couple of boutiques in New York, but it's from all over the world and people want this bag. Um, he declined the offer, but he did say, you know, call your brother. So that's when I really got some great business expertise. Uh, with how to move things forward. And, you know, he came in on my partner and we formalized, you know, the business. And so we could actually put organization in under 
under it to make sure that it actually could succeed and was a viable uh, company. So that's, you know, we professionalized, we began to hire people, you know, I think we really just made it a true company. So before you made it a true company and, and you knew that you wanted to, to really dedicate yourself to this, were you doing this kind of like on the side? Was it like, it started like with like weekend projects and, and you had like your, your job, you know, really to sustain yourself because New York City is a very expensive place to live. So, so how are you doing things? So, uh, from 2001 to till 2005, there was, uh, it was really my main job. And I literally like any $20 I got for the t-shirt would go to either pay my rent or buy my food. And then I would supplement as much as I could with, uh, jobs, whether it was, I was a stylist, um, for commercials and that would pay very well. So I think that that helped supplement until the business got to a place where it could actually you know, be the main, the main full-time gig. So then, so then was that, did that happen when you finally made the call to your brother and you guys decided on, on jumping on this or, or were you kind of like already doing this before Yuri came into the picture? I mean, I already had the, you know, I was already, it was already my full-time gig with the exception of these small styling jobs, uh, prior to my brother. And I think when he came on, you know, he said, all right, let's add up. What is the minimum amount you can live on as we get this company growing? And we came to a number, it's $23,000 a year. I'll never forget it. Um, and so that was like any first money into the company, you know, aside from us paying the bills we had to pay would go to making that salary so that I could just not have to worry about, you know, the next styling job or, you know, you know, freaking out about like, when am I going to get paid? So that was priority number one. And from there, you know, we began to look at now that this is a hundred percent, my focus, you know, how do we continue to feed the business, what it needs in order to grow? Because your brother had also some business experience, even though he was like more coming from like the tech side. Is that, is that correct? Correct. He had a very successful tech company. And so he had some great business and sales experience that he was able to leverage early on to help. So how did you convince him? It didn't take much. I think he looks at opportunities, uh, where he sees a heat as he calls it around something. And he could see the heat around the desire for the product. He could see my passion. And at the time he thought those were, and he could see the growth, you know, uh, the way the orders were coming in, he could see that there was definitely momentum. And so when he looked at all those factors, he said, all right, you know, let's do this. So in a co-founding team like this, where you are partnering up with, with your brother, what would you say that he had, that it was kind of like a strength that perhaps it was a weakness. And what was your strength that perhaps it was a weakness of his to, to really make this magical? I think his strength is he's very, very smart with business, with math, with technology. So whether it was negotiating deals with our bank or, you know, the people that loaned us money early on to seeing the future of what was happening in technology and knowing that, you know, this direct to consumer universe was going to change everything, um, really helped usher our company, you know, to be on the front lines of all this. Um, and I guess I would say my strengths are, you know, seeing opportunities in, in everything, being able to seize them, um, having a creative vision for trends or things that I think are coming that a woman doesn't know she wants, but 
will eventually want. Um, and, you know, I think we make a great team that way. Really cool. And, you know, there's this book called The Founder's Dilemma that talks about co-founder relationships where you're in, when you are launching a business, let's say with your husband or wife or with a family member, like a brother or a sister or even your parents. And it's sometimes not really easy because it's very hard to really tell the, um, the, the way things are because you don't want to hurt the other one. And, and it's just tough uh, building a business with, with a family member. So, so how was the experience for you guys as family doing this? What were some of the challenges? Um, I think it's interesting that you say the founder's dilemma. There has been no filter in that relationship of who, you know, whoever, uh, of feeling like when one person is wrong, pointing out those, um, you know, those faults, um, maybe to the extreme in that because there was a feeling of familiarity and growing up together, I think it led to the ability for that to be easy to do. And I don't know, you know, I don't know that that's a positive either, right? if it goes the other way. So I think that, you know, we've had to work hard to figure out a way to communicate where you, you can tell each other, you know, when someone messes up or does something wrong, but it doesn't explode and turn into, you know, an argument. And I think, you know, boiling it down to what is the most important thing I'm trying to get across here and how do I make that heard versus the emotions and, you know, really trying to separate the two. It's never, it's never perfect. And we've done a lot of work to have it be as, as perfect as it can be. But you know what, when you're spending more time with this person than your spouse, um, and you're related, you're bound to, you're bound to argue. Absolutely. Look, I built the last business with my wife. So, uh, I know, I know how it feels, you know, thank exactly. God it worked, but, but you know, sometimes it doesn't many times it doesn't actually, but, but anyhow, so, so Rebecca, what were the early days like for you guys? They were really exciting. Um, you know, we kept doubling our sales. Uh, it was all, you know, inbound. Uh, you know, the demand for the bags were, were so much. And I think, you know, our stress was how do we keep up with this? How do we pay for this? How do we, you know, make sure that we can meet the demand? So there was a lot of things to figure out. But, you know, my memories of that time were, you know, it was it was the time that, you know, every, every business wants to have. Um, happen, you know, when they launch is this hunger and desire and excitement. But, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned this. It, it seems that you guys hit product market fit early on. And I think that that's critical to really be able to build something meaningful. So in fashion, I mean, there's just so many brands, so many people trying to launch stuff, so much competition. So what nerve do you think you guys actually hit on the market to really gain that product market fit so, so quickly? Well, I think, um, it was obviously very different back then. Um, when you have, uh, l you know, less brands, you know, the ability for a brand to launch like ours now, it could be every day, but back then it was not. Um, so I think, you know, we could stand out in a way back then that is very hard or expensive to do these days. Um, and I think no one was talking to this customer that was, not able to afford, uh, afford luxury, but also didn't want, you know, something off the side of the street. So I think that that was sort of a new development within fashion. Um, and so it was like a great time when this new category was launching. So I see that every, you know, for the most part, every fashion brand, they have like, um, like an iconic, um, let's say something item, you know, a shoe or bag or, or whatever that is that really identifies that, that helps people to identify themselves or to identify the brand. So what was that for you? 
I think at the time, um, I was very much anti logo or anti, uh, some sort of obvious plaque on the front of something. I, I, it wasn't something that appealed to me personally, and I wanted something more timeless. I also wanted something that, you know, made me stand out as a whole for my style and not just like, here's the plaque that I purchased and I spent this much money. Um, so for me, it was other details. It was, you know, the initial dog clip that's on a lot of the bags. There was a signature flap that is recognizable today. It was tassels. And that was kind of all I wanted it to be. I wanted it to be pretty understated. And, uh, if you, if you knew, you knew, and if you didn't know, then you, then you stopped a woman and you asked. And, and one of the things that, that I've seen is that you have been able to develop a, a really large following, right? So uh, Twitter, like 900,000 people, Instagram, 800,000 people. So, so I guess, would you say that now in, in, in the fashion industry, the, the influencer approach and the following is, is really critical to really push things forward? I mean, I think it's really critical. I think that you have to you know, we're all trying to outthink each other and, and trying to figure out, you know, what's happening. And it's, it's moving a lot faster today than it did 10 years ago. Um, and I think we're trying to keep up with the consumer who is ravenous and, you know, you have to just keep innovating and keep, you know, your pulse on your customer and she's moving, you know, it's, you don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg, but she's moving faster and faster. So brands and companies have to move faster and faster, but it's all because, you know, we're, we're feeding this, this cycle. Got it. You know, it's funny that you mentioned the chicken and the egg. My, my previous company was a marketplace. And I remember when I was doing fundraising, the, the investors always talked about the chicken and the egg. And I ended up just thinking that I wanted to shoot the chicken and step on the egg. But uh, <laughs> anyways, that's a different discussion. So, so one of the things here, that Rebecca, as a follow-up to that is that on the growth side of things, and especially now where we are at with, with trends and, and so forth, it seems that really understanding the dynamics of how to work with bloggers and then also influencers to really drive growth and, and push the brand forward is, is somewhat important. So what, what have you learned about that? I think that, you know, for us early on, it was a natural extension. If I was going to be talking to my customer and she was electing, you know, certain people, uh, that she thought were, uh, style icons that those were people we wanted to work with. I think at the time also as a, as a new company, we didn't have the budget or the resources to do big glossy print advertising. So this was also a way to get in front of, uh, our customer. So, um, it's never been something we had to have a strategy for early on. You know, I think we worked with them. It was successful. We keep figuring out ways to work with them. Obviously now this is very normal and every brand, you know, has influencer programs. So we're just trying to be savvy about it. Thoughtful, um, thoughtful about who we work with, when, why, and making sure that they're the right fit for the brand. And, um, you know, really keeping our eye on, you know, what could be next. I don't have that answer, but like, you know, that at some point there's going to be something else. And I think we want to be on the forefront of that as much as we can. And I, and I, one thing that I really like about our conversation here is that you talk a lot about your customers and, and without your customers, there's nothing. And, and, and I love that, that you always keep the customer in, in, in your mind. So, so one of the things that, that I wanted to ask you here is you, you do embrace community. And you embrace that and, and you have events that you even do in your, in your stores. So, so what, 
how did you guys came up with this idea? I think, again, something that was natural to the brand early on was me being in touch with our customer, whether it was online in a forum situation or, you know, when we would do a big events with wholesalers, you know, where I would go to a town and meet 300 of these women. So I think as soon as we had our stores, it was important to continue those types of events where we could meet our customer. And I didn't want to do a traditional meet and greet. I really wanted to give her something of value. So um, probably about four years ago, we elected to have these fireside chats. I get to interview, you know, a woman I admire that I hope, you know, our customer comes away with something more valuable, um, you know, than just having had a good time that she can learn something, uh, and be inspired as well as get her new favorite, you know, Rebecca Minkoff. So then how do you think about the, um, new development and and this goes to perhaps like cases like Henry Ford and you know when when someone asked him hey you know if, if someone was to tell me they would want like a hundred whatever an amount of horses rather than really giving them a car or like Steve Jobs said that that you got to listen to your customer but in many instances they don't even know what what they want so how do you go about for example when you're having or dealing with customers to really understand what may be a hit uh, with 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 that segment I think that both are right. Um, you know, with fashion, you're not necessarily giving her something she doesn't know she wants, but you have to be knowing where the trends are going and be really good at giving her that trend item at that exact time. And, you know, I wish it could be more of a science. Sometimes it's more of an art. Um, but if all of a sudden, you know, everyone they follow is into yellow, you, you better have that yellow bag or that yellow dress. Um, and so I think, you know, you have to have a keen eye of, you know, where that stuff is moving. And then from a service perspective, you know, if a big company is going to be forward thinking in its innovation and how they're going to service customers, it doesn't matter that you're a smaller company and that you might not be able to afford that. You have to figure out, you know, how do you be nimble and, and give the customer now what she's used to. So I think it's a challenge. We're not perfect at it, but I think we're, we're trying to constantly, you know, do as much as we can for our customer and give her the experience that, you know, she's getting from much larger brands. And, and, and for example, like with, um, let's say with your brother, with Yuri, maybe he's, he's shared this with you because we have uh, people that are listening perhaps from, from all types of industries and, and Yuri was coming from tech. So what, what are, for example, some of the challenges that, that he saw that he shared with you and that obviously, you know, that's the typical challenges that you see here in fashion. Like what, what are some of the, um, unique challenges of, of building a brand in, in this industry? Um, I mean, where do I start? Uh, Let's just say I the think, three biggest ones. <laughs> well, I think that the, you know, the brick and mortar experience is broken. You can't get rid of it. You know, people don't want to just be in their homes all day buying clothing to not go anywhere. Um, and so I think when we begin to evaluate our store, uh, experience, we, we didn't want it to be the old school way. So that was key in developing the technology we have in our stores. Um, and I think, you know, we began to go, what is the customer journey when she walks in the store? How does she want to be treated? Does she want to be anonymous? Does she want to be a celebrity or somewhere in between? And how can our associates look for those signals? Um, and then when you get her into the dressing room, how could you have me, you know, quote unquote, be in the room with her and give her an experience that uh, is similar to one you get online? So it, it led us to create a lot of the innovation there. 
And I think it's, you know, it's constantly trying to look for the pain points that your customer has and without using technology for tech's sake, use it to just ease the pain points. So, um, whether it's as low lift as Instagram, you know, live, here's my spring pics, here's how you style them to, you know, high tech as, you know, come into our store and experience what it's like, you know, to see a view of the future of shopping. Interesting. And for example, technology, you were talking about technology. How has technology or how have you guys uh, implemented technology to really, you know, scale things up? I think for us, it was, um, again, the technology in the stores. We also were the first brand after Apple, uh, the same day as Apple, uh, launching their, their Apple watch, you know, we had launched some wearables. Um, I think we've seen that, you know, the traditional female wallet is going to be extinct. And so how do you put a phone in a beautiful case with a chargeable battery with wallet capabilities as something that she's going to need, uh, or even, you know, a tassel that looks like really pretty hanging off a bag, but gives you that extra charge. I think, you know, we're trying to look at real problems uh, when we're using technology to, to solve for women. Really cool. And in terms of, um, I mean, a, a fashion brand, I, I guess is, is probably, a, it could be a, a little bit different to like the typical, let's say tech startups that, that your brother maybe was used to where you have like the VC coming in and financing the operation. So how did you guys capitalize the, the business? Um, well, we had several ways. The first, uh, was, you know, my brother mortgaging his house, uh, and maxing out his credit cards. <laughs> um, and then, and then within the fashion industry and it's, it's not to all industries, there's, um, a bank called a factor. And so they would advance X percentage on, uh, receivables that passed a credit check and, or sorry, accounts that passed a credit check. So we were able to partner with them and, you know, most large department stores, uh, you know, all pass those credit checks. So, you know, they were able to advance us 80% of the invoice amount, uh, allow us to have working capital and then, you know, collect on the back end the, the remaining 20%. So we did that for, um, from 2000 and I would say 2007, uh, till 2011, when we then took in our first investment with a private equity firm followed up with another one in 2014, um, and have decided that, you know, we're good for now. And, uh, we really want to grow the business now on the, on the actual, you know, the money it's making itself. Really cool. Really cool. And the, the total amount that you guys have raised, is that a, a public? No, uh, we don't really disclose those that. Yeah. Okay, cool. So the uh, so the journey of being a founder, Rebecca, is is not such thing as a straight line. And you know, I think that the the highs are very high and the lows are very low. So, what was it for you, for example, um, a really dark uh, moment, and what kind of breakthrough moment did you get out of that? Because when there is a break a breakdown, there's always a breakthrough. You know, there's been a lot. Um... And I think I like to talk about the fact that they're actually every week. And just because you're bigger and it looks all perfect on Instagram doesn't mean it's that way. Um, you know, so whether it was, uh, you know, my, my first overseas experience, my bags were made with, uh, Kate Spade's hardware on them. And, you know, we shipped product that had Rebecca Minkoff and Kate Spade on the same bag and to have your customers find that out because you didn't have 
a quality control person was uh, a pretty humbling experience. Um, that was one. I think, you know, back when we did have private equity partners, you know, sometimes they would make demands that could cripple your business or, um, you know, if we had listened, would have, you know, made us non-existent as a company. And so I think when you're dealing with those challenges sometimes and you think you might have to listen or you feel forced up against a wall, um, those can, those can be pretty dark times. I hear you. I hear you. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that, that I've seen as well is that on your guys' end, you, you, you always, the, the, the company always has made like really interesting moves. One, one of the ones that, uh, one move that I saw that you guys did was you decided no longer to present at the New York Fashion Week. What was that? So actually we just had taken one year off. Uh, the reason being, um, last February I was actually due with my son. Uh, and so I didn't feel like going into labor, uh, on the day of my fashion show. That was one. Also two, it didn't really feel, uh, smart or I, I, I use the word tone deaf. It felt tone deaf to have a fashion show amidst all the political upheaval that is, was existing in our time. And so for both of those reasons, we chose to use those resources, you know, towards our digital experience. Um, and then in September of last year, we decided, you know, we're really launching a new brand campaign and we feel that is best served with a, a lot of digital content. And so that was how we chose again to use those resources. But we came back this last February, uh, for fashion week and we loved it. And, you know, the ROI was phenomenal. So we'll probably be continuing to do that really cool. on, on the go forward. And, and just so for the listeners, so that they get an idea of, uh, of how big is the business, how big is Rebecca Minkoff today? So we don't give exact numbers, but we're north of a hundred million, um, is what's been printed in the past. So that's what I'm at liberty to say. Really cool. And in terms of distribution and stores and, and stuff like that. So we're in, um, just over 900 points of distribution, uh, for owned stores within the U S and then eight Rebecca Minkoff stores overseas, one in Venice, one in Malaysia, one in Thailand, uh, one in Korea and Yes, that's it. So for the people that are listening that are in the fashion industry, as, as they're thinking about scaling, right? I mean, with all this distribution that you have, as you're thinking about scaling, what kind of tips would you give people listening? This is what I would say. I would say there is a very trendy notion today that you can only scale your business uh, if you get VC funding uh, or if you go the private equity route. And, you know, I, I think not every business should be going down that road. If you have a product and you have momentum and you have heat, there is nothing with growing organically and strongly with the heat of your own customers wanting this. And when you then go to get PE or VC money, you're that much stronger. You sell that much less of your company because you've held on for, for longer, or there's, you know, companies that can qualify for small business loans or using a mix of credit card and, and small business loan, you know, uh, capitalization. So I think that, you know, do your research, do your homework. There's a lot of companies that fail and it's just because they've been infused with too much cash too fast. They spend it and their investors want a return. And so those investors are going to optimize 
for things that give them the return, not necessarily things that are in the best interest of the company and the founder. Um, so to, you know, go slow, do your research, don't need to be a part of this trend and make sure that if you do bring on partners, you know, that contract is, is more complicated than any marriage contract. So to make sure that whoever you're partnering with is, is people that, uh, you really feel comfortable and trust for the long term. A hundred percent. It's tougher to divorce uh, an investor than your husband or wife. That's true. Yeah. So, uh, so Rebecca, where, you know, you, you were mentioning trends, where do you think the fashion industry is, is going as a whole? I think it's evolving. Um, I think there's a lot of talk right now around sustainability and that doesn't mean that every brand has to be, um, you know, crunchy granola. I think, I think we as brands are trying to become more responsible about where we source, who's making our goods, you know, the impact on the planet. Um, and I think you'll see a lot of older brands, you know, go by the wayside as, as they sort of age out of this new customer set. And you'll see a lot of direct to consumer brands go, uh, oh, uh, we need to actually open brick and mortar and, and touch and feel our customer. And, and one of the things that I've seen and, you know, that I thought it was really, really interesting. I mean, I, I have three daughters myself, so I'm a big, big fan of, uh, of women and also women in business. And, and I've seen that you've done a lot for, for female founders, empowering women. So what kind of tips would you give to the female founders that are right now listening? Uh, well, I would definitely say join the female founder collective. It's a network of over 4,000 women owned businesses. Um, you know, we've created a seal that denotes a female founded company. Plus we have, you know, via our private, you know, Facebook and Google and Slack groups, you know, access to all these women to just help each other out, to give each other the black book, um, on, on what they've done to get successful. So, uh, definitely join. And then I would say that, you know, there is power in community and there's power in helping each other and to find and seek out, you know, local women around you that are going through what you're going through. And it's always good to just open up and share the challenges and see who, you know, who can help you. And, and as you're speaking with, with, with all these women, is there like a common pattern, like, like, let's say like two uh, typical hurdles or challenges that, that female founders tend to experience as they're launching a business and scaling it from the ground up? I don't know that there's typical ones. I do know that a lot of them feel that if they are trying to get an investment that, you know, they are not speaking to their target demographic. And so they have trouble being understood. Uh, or taken seriously sometimes. Um, I hear that quite a lot. You know, they'll be pitching to a VC and, you know, a man will be sitting across the table and I'll say, oh, let me talk to my wife. Let me see what she thinks. You know, when really these are serious business women that should just deserve, you know, to be taken seriously on, on their product alone. Um, and I think that, you know, it's a challenge, not just for women, but any founder is like, you know, you're, you're making a path that maybe no one has ever uh, carved before. And so there's a lot of stuff that you need quick, easy answers to. And, and how do you get access to that information in a swift way? That's like, you know, the shortcut so that you can get to the next hurdle. So I think, you know, there's no handbook for founders, right? Yeah. No. And, and, and one thing that to follow up on that, I, I, I mean, the VC, the VC space and the invest, investor space is specifically for 
for startups, it has been a boys club and, and you know, thank God it's, it's actually changing now. I mean, there's really this incredible trend and, and, and I'm excited, you know, about this trend because I think that there's several studies that have pointed out that ultimately having women at a senior level is, is ultimately a really big factor of, of success. And in fact, those companies that have senior executives that are female senior executives perform better than those that don't. Yeah. There's, there's incredible studies, uh, all that point to, you know, 50, 50, you know, uh, at the executive table or, you know, the, you know, the amount of money that women are contributing to the economy. I mean, there's, there's so much rich data that points to, you know, equal is better. Um, I think that, you know, people that are scared of that just need to sort of wake up that, you know, it might be more, more beneficial in the long run, uh, to, to go that way. And, and as we're talking about people, uh, Rebecca, how, how did you think about, let's say, recruiting and, and building your team? What were some of the absolute must traits that, that, that you were looking for in people? I think for me, it's someone, you know, I count loyalty, hard work uh, as two really important traits that I would put above a college degree or uh, other things that I think in the past people have thought of as important. I think uh, a firm handshake, a look in the eye, a desire and a willingness to like get behind and help push, you know, push that rock up the mountain, I think is kind of the, the few things that I look for. And, and someone that is, you know, even though they're working for me, you know, they view themselves as an entrepreneur within, you know, their space um, so that they're constantly trying to innovate and be excited about something. And they don't just feel like a, a cog in the wheel. Because how many people do you have now? We have about 65 people. 65 people. And and how do you embrace culture, Rebecca? I think for us, culture is about, you know, taking the temperature of what our, our employees want and trying to give that to them versus trying to invent what we think they want. So we know they want lots of time off um, <clears throat> and they want, you know, fun ancillary outside activities. So I think that's what we focus on is maximizing their time here, giving them you know, Fridays that end at three, Mondays that start at 10, generous, uh, you know, if you work a weekend, we know that's holy time. Um, so, you know, getting days off in return. Um, and I think that that means more to them than, you know, lots of cocktails or, uh, <laughs> other ancillary activities. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. So 17 years already added Rebecca, what a, what an incredible ride. So, so in a future where your vision finally comes to fruition, what, what does that world look like? Oh, man, that is a big question. Um, where does it look like? Uh, I definitely think there is a lot of room to grow Rebecca coming off the company into, you know, more even more of a global brand. Um, so whether that's, you know, our own stores, uh, you know, in lots more places. We definitely have line extensions we're working on, whether it's home or kids, you know, in the future beauty. Uh, those are all line extensions that we're really excited about that we're just beginning to think about. So that's really amazing. And and I guess one of the questions that I typically ask the, the guests that come on the show is, I mean, you've been at it for, for quite some time. I mean, around the block several, several times, Ups and downs. So I guess looking back now, if if you had the opportunity, and obviously this is impossible, but you know you have you have children, so I'm sure that you pass some of the lessons learned, or or you're going to pass some of the lessons learned. If you had the opportunity to really speak with your younger self, with that younger Rebecca that was coming out of FIT and 
and was about to launch her own business, what would be that one business uh, advice that you would give to, to her? I think I would, uh, you know, definitely say, don't be scared to take a risk and to carve your own path. I think for a long time, I thought you had to follow the same route and path that other designers followed and be in that system. And I think, you know, the more we began to carve our own way and do things on our own terms, that's where we won. And so I would have just said, don't be scared. Yeah, because in many instances, we're we're biggest challenge, right? We're like always um, kind of like giving reasons not to do things and take the risk. That's true. Yeah. So, so Rebecca, for the folks that are listening, what is the uh, best way for them to reach out and say hi? Well, they should definitely listen to my podcast. It's called Super Women with Rebecca Minkoff. I get to talk to really incredible women that have inspired me. Um, and so you can take a listen, get to know me personally, get to know these women, um, and follow me on Instagram at Rebecca Minkoff. Amazing. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thank you so much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.